So good to be back. My name is Bruce Finn, and I have a couple of hats that I wear in ministry. One is I um, am church planning coordinator for four presbyteries of churches in and around the city of Philadelphia. So I oversee their collective and separate interests in church planning, including New City. I coach Santo in his role as church planting or church planter. And so that's one of the things I do. The other thing I do is in my spare time and as a volunteer, I'm pastor of missions at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Doylestown. And uh, the, the row of people that you saw sitting back there uh, before we dismissed the kids, they came with me in a way this weekend uh, because they've come here on what we call a mini mission trip, a mini mission trip. And so I thought, I'd t- before I get to my message, I thought I'd talk to you about uh, just kind of what's going on in missions and, and why those folks are here. Uh, so obviously, like, like most churches that, that uh, believe the Bible, trust in Jesus, and, and want to follow him, uh, we have missions and missions, missions interests, uh, and I oversee them in, in my church. And uh, one of the, th- the most important thing that we do to promote missions, both here, there, and over there at our church, is to simply preach the gospel of Jesus. In other words, you don't promote missions by promoting missions. You promote missions by promoting Jesus, uh, because Jesus is, uh, is the one who took the ultimate mission trip at great cost and discomfort to himself to serve and save people in a far-off place. So Jesus is the ultimate missionary who went on personal mission from heaven to earth uh, at the cost of his own life on the cross so that he might accomplish an, a mission of bringing us near to God. Uh, so as we, what we find out is that as we simply preach the gospel of Jesus in our church, uh, and as people get the gospel, you know, and I don't mean just intellectually, but as people get the gospel at a real heart level, it begins to really grip them. They not only are personally drawn to Jesus to follow him, but, but more and more, they desire to follow him as missionaries on mission in different ways and places. And so what we try to do is give opportunity for our people at Covenant Church to express that desire. Okay, so, you know, the more you follow Jesus, the more you appreciate how he has gone the distance for you, you want to go for him in some way, shape, form, or direction. And what we say is you don't need to cross an ocean to go on mission. Uh, that there are missionary opportunities both near and far and even further. So actually offering our, some of our folks the opportunity to come here, um, you, did, you did us a big favor because we have more and more people who want to go somewhere, uh, and we're just trying to develop opportunities where they can serve. So, so that's what they've done, that they're basically here to be on mission for you and to you, to serve you in a way that we hope is truly helpful to you. And uh, so um, I, I'm, I'm happy that you're, you're grateful for the help, but I'm, I'm grateful that you gave these folks the opportunity to serve because that's what God's done in their heart. And, and maybe that is a good example for each of you too, as you, as you live out mission here in Ventnor, Lenox City and beyond, uh, but also may at times in the future send people elsewhere, whatever that might look like for you. So anyway, let's get back to uh, this, uh, this two-part series. You, you know, I've, I've sort of given you a sampler from Hebrews chapter 11, just two little tidbit stories from what has been called 
Faith's Hall of Fame. You know, so baseball has a Hall of Fame in, in Cooperstown, New York, and football has a Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Uh, the Bible has a Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, where uh, great personalities from Old Testament times are given honorable mention, not because of necessarily the great things they did, but rather the great and giant faith that they had. Remember the illustration of the mouse riding on the elephant, that our, our, our ability to impact the world uh, is not measured by our own strength. We're like mice. Uh, but rather, our ability to impact the world by faith uh, is dependent on the giant God on whom we rest and trust. And that's what we're seeing in these two stories that I have for you from Hebrews 11. Uh, so last Sunday, we talked about uh, Abram and Sarah, who were giants because of their faith in God. Uh, and today, I want to talk to you about... Uh, a group of people and an individual. And so my message this morning is the people and the prostitute. Join me in, in prayer. Father, as we turn to you and to the word, uh, we turn to the one who wrote this for us, uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, we acknowledge that the, the Bible is not an ordinary book, but it is rather a special book that was especially written and guided uh, by the help of your Holy Spirit. So that what we have before us this morning uh, is not the words of men, but truly the word of God, that which is true and eternal and unchangeable, and that you have designed the words in this book to have life and life-giving power to those who read and believe. So we're praying for that. We're praying that as we approach the scriptures this morning, that you would speak to us on a very personal and individual level, but also as a church. Uh, that you would uh, call us and draw us uh, to a fuller, more mature, and complete faith in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So you've heard the expression, there is no I in team. Everybody's heard that from their coach somewhere along the way. We try to teach our children that uh, their wishes and desires uh, are not as important as the wishes and desires of the team on which they play. And so they, they need to be sacrificing their goals uh, for the greater goals of victory for the team. So there is no I in team. But don't you agree that there are times when the accomplishment of an individual on the team are so amazing, so outstanding, that those accomplishments change the outcome for the whole team? Isn't that true? That one person can make a difference for everybody. Now, I have a personal example here. In, in 1998, my sister, Candace Finn Rocha, was inducted into the National Lacrosse Hall of Fame at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, after a long and illustrious career in two sports at Penn State. She was a multiple All-American in both sports. Uh, she was four-time national championship on the, on the team in both sports, two in each sport. In, in 1980, get this, in 1980, my sister Candace scored the winning goal to bring the national title of women's field hockey to Penn State. And in the same year, she scored the winning goal to bring the national title of women's lacrosse to Penn State 
the only female athlete in the country ever to do that, according to Guinness Book of Sports Records. Uh, in, in the November 9th, 1981 edition of Sports Illustrated, in an article entitled Outstanding in Her Fields, sports writer Bob Odom wrote this. As she charges through her senior year, Candace Finn may well be the best woman team athlete in the country. And I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, Bruce, you're just bragging on your sister. <laughs> you bet I am. <laughs> you bet I am. So this is it. There, there may be no I in team, but there are times when the accomplishments of one individual are so dramatic, so amazing, that it, it, it changes the outcome for everybody. So today we're going to see how the faith of one individual, an extraordinary, unique, and surprising individual, uh, had a dramatic impact uh, on the outcome for an entire community, and how the faith of that same community brought life-saving benefits to that one individual. And notice that there is an I in community. So individuals matter in the community, uh, but the community is important as well. We're going to see a couple things. We're going to see uh, how life-altering faith operates uh, in each and every one of us in a personal, individual way. But at the same time, side by side, we're going to see how uh, life-altering faith expresses itself through a community, an entire nation of people. So my message this morning is entitled, The People and the Prostitute. And it's taken from just two verses from Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 30. This is God's word. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So last week and this week, I give you a working definition of faith. We have it up there. Faith is a life-altering response to God, His Word, and His movement toward you. Faith is a life-altering response to God. So God moves first. God speaks first. And faith is a response to God speaking and moving toward us. And the idea here is that God speaks to us and moves toward us as individuals, one by one, uniquely and personally. And that each and every one of us are called to respond to God by expressing faith, which ultimately changes or alters the outcome of our life forever. So we respond to God like last week, Abraham and Sarah, individually and personally. Today, we respond to God one soul at a time as we discover God's amazing grace that's revealed to us in the person and on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we'll see this illustrated for us once again in the experience of the prostitute. But also, we're going to see that responsiveness to God is not just individual, but responsiveness to God from a biblical point of view, is also collective. That faith is something that communities of people 
express. Faith is something that congregations of people express together. That the exercise of faith is not just something for you and for yourself personally. It's not just your personal possession. Though we, though we emphasize that time and time again, the importance of personal faith in God through Jesus Christ. But that same personal individual faith uh, is also something that is and should always be expressed in the context of a congregation or a community of faith. We're going to see how these things play together, that a community is inspired and built up by the faith of one person, and the faith of every individual is supported and encouraged by the community of faith in which God places them. So let's, let's begin. I just have two big ideas for you today. Uh, and we begin with the people, with life-altering faith, the people march together toward victory. Now, if we had read the previous verses of Hebrews 11, we would have come upon the faith of Moses, one of the great heroes of Old Testament history. And we would have read verses which talked about how Moses, God's chosen hero, led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt across the Red Sea, through the Sinai Desert, and he led them to the very brink of the land that God had promised to give them. It was at that point that Moses turned over the leadership of the nation to a young man by the name of Joshua. And it was Joshua's responsibility to lead the nation in conquest, conquering the evil occupants of the land one city at a time. The first city that they would encounter was the city of Jericho. Jericho was a walled city. Jericho was a fortified city overlooking the Jordan River. Jericho was a city that was defended by a fierce militia of battle-hardened warriors. So Joshua and the people would need an extraordinary plan to overcome this powerful place. They would need a D-Day Normandy Beach shock and awe kind of plan. Or so they thought. Now can you imagine the people of Israel preparing for this great battle on their side of the Jordan? You know, I picture them sharpening their swords and their spears, you know, doing push-ups, pull-ups, chest bumps, putting the eye black on, you know, doing whatever they had to do to get ready for the battle. Because they were thinking, no doubt, about an all-out assault, a full force invasion Attack helicopters, cruise missiles, drone strikes, probably a few nukes as well. You get the idea. Then Joshua shows up, fresh from a conversation with God. He calls him into a huddle, and he gives him the plan. Now get this. But God's plan is nothing like the plan they would have devised or had in their mind. That's an important principle. That God's plans rarely coincide with our natural plans or the plans that we would devise apart from Him. Instead of a forward attack, God told them to march around the city seven 
times, once a day for seven days. And they would, re- they would march around the city in rank and file, in full battle array, silently. Imagine if you were the resident of Jericho watching this happen. So the Israelites marching around the city once every day. And the only noise that was heard were the priests that were told to sound the ram's horns or the trumpets continuously. Got the picture? Then on the seventh day, God told the people that they were to march around the city now seven times in the same way. And after the seventh time, when Joshua gave the word, the people were to shout together really, really loudly. That was the plan. And if they would do this, God said, the walls of Jericho would come a-tumbling down. That was the plan. I, I mean, you know, it just seems silly, right? So God's people had a choice to make by faith. And I want you to see that this was a faith, a faith choice. It, 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 it was a, a choice they made dependent on what they believed. If they didn't believe God, then they would think that this plan was a stupid plan, a foolish plan on the face of it, a plan with, that was likely to lead to shame, humiliation, and defeat. If they didn't believe God, then their impulse would be to rely on their own strength, their own military might to defeat the city. Because that's what unbelief does. Unbelief is self-reliant. Unbelief lives life as though God doesn't exist or God doesn't matter. There is no mystery to unbelief. There are no miracles in unbelief. Unbelief is limited to a life that could only be accomplished through human strength and human power. Unbelief settles for a life that is limited by what we and we alone can do for ourselves. And I, and I know this because I've lived like that in unbelief. And yet... If the people believed in God and implemented His plan, then they would have a life-altering experience as they marched together toward God's victory. You see, that's what a community of faith does. A community of faith expresses faith together in God and His plans, no matter how foolish they may appear to the world. And as they do so, they march together according to God's mysterious plan to gain God's victory that He has promised to secure them as His people. The story of the defeat of Jericho is an interesting story, don't you think? It's an amazing story. And it's a story that no doubt was well known by the original recipients of the book of Hebrews. But it's a fair question for us to ask, what does this Old Testament story have to do with New Testament faith in Jesus? And my answer to that question is everything. It has everything to do with faith in Jesus. You see, God wants us to know 
that as individuals, that our individual and personal faith must never stand alone. When God speaks to you, and when God moves toward you in a personal way, and when you begin to walk with Jesus, then you are also called to march together with others who walk with Jesus. The victory over sin and death that Christ uh, secured for us on the cross and from, by the resurrection is not just a victory for you. Yeah, it is, it's for you. Receive it. It's for you. But it's not just for you. The victory that Jesus accomplished on the cross is a victory that He accomplished for a community of faith that He called the church. And we experience that victory only as we march rank and file together in a community. In just one verse, Hebrews 11 challenges a cultural idol. We might call it an American idol. And it's the idol of self-reliance that we mentioned earlier. This is a personal idol of mine. By the way, you want a definition of an idol? An idol is anything or anyone that I depend on in the place of God. Anyone or anything that I depend on in the place of God. And that could be anybody or anything. But in this case, it's the self. It's a personal idol. Now please understand, there is a, is a, a good... Uh, level of of self-reliance. We want our children to grow up to be independent. We want them to be able to solve their own problems and take care of themselves. That's what parenting is all about. That's the ultimate goal. Uh, As I like to say, we we raise them up to get rid of them. (laughs) Um, But in its extreme form, self-reliance may lead to a belief that says, I don't need anybody. I can do it myself. I will achieve success and victory on my own. But guess what? That's not true. That's a lie. You may achieve success in business without any help, though that's doubtful. You may raise a healthy, successful family without any help though that's questionable. But you will never experience the fullness of the victory that Jesus achieved for you on the cross and by the empty tomb if you are determined to walk alone in that. Unless you learn how to march together with others toward Christ's victory. Now, I think here of the story of the paralytic from the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. Do you know the story? There's a paralyzed man. He couldn't walk. He couldn't move. He couldn't leave his house on his own. He was completely dependent on other people. So his friends stop by. They load him on a stretcher. They carry him all the way across town. They can't get in the house, so they climb up on the roof and they, they make a hole in the roof above the place where Jesus is teaching a Bible study below. And they lower the paralytic down 
in front of Jesus where he couldn't be missed. And instead of being annoyed, like I would be, if somebody interrupted my Bible study like that, instead of being annoyed, the Bible says that when Jesus saw their faith, that is, the faith of the men who brought him, he turned to the paralytic, he forgave him for all his sins, and he restored the man to health immediately. Now, isn't that an amazing story? Because we have a tendency to think that, you know, God only works in the context of personal individual faith. But in this story, it doesn't say anything about what the paralytic believed or didn't believe. It says that Jesus, Jesus was so overwhelmingly impressed with the faith of these men who brought him that acting on their faith, God responded by healing and forgiving the paralyzed man. They walked together toward Christ's victory. So then the question is, what does it look like for you or you all to march together in victory? What does that look like in some practical way? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that a march together faith might simply be that you ask someone else to pray for you. Because when you ask someone else to pray for you, it is basically an act of self-denial and a rejection of self-reliance. Because when you ask someone to pray for you, you're saying, I need help. I need God. I need you. I need others. So march together might simply mean, will you pray for me this week as I approach this situation? Or maybe a march together kind of faith means that you join a small group Bible study if you're not already in one. Because small group Bible studies basically say, you know, I can't really figure out the Christian life or the Bible by myself. I really need other people to help me understand who Jesus is and what that means for my life. And so joining a small group Bible study means that you're walking together with others to achieve a victory of personal and spiritual maturity and to understand the Bible even better and better because you can't do it without others. Or maybe marching together kind of faith means that you finally join New City Fellowship Church. Uh, And you join the church not because you have to, but because you want to. And by joining, you're essentially saying, I want to walk together with these people here on the mission that God has given them and given us in Ventnor, Atlantic City, and beyond. That's what membership means, is I, I want to belong. I want to be a part of this. I'm in. Or maybe march together kind of faith means that you band together with a few other believers, like the friends of the paralytic, and you reach out to someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, who may not yet be a part of this fellowship, and you reach out in faith, hoping and praying that God will see your faith and do for them what we see He did here in the Scripture. And of course, if you're someone who comes to New City Fellowship regularly, then you know that Pastor Santo would never pressure you or try to guilt you into doing any of these things. But rather, I give them to you as a practical expression of what does it look like when God speaks to me and He moves toward me and I respond in faith in a way that causes me to want to march together toward victory. So that's the first big idea. The people 
march together toward God's victory. But now we have to turn our attention from the people to the prostitute who teaches us my second big idea for the day. And here it is. With life-altering faith, the prostitute chooses sides in the battle. The prostitute chooses sides in the battle. Now, I know it's not Christmas, but um, I want you to imagine with me the manger scene where Jesus was born. Can you picture that? Can you picture the... I know it's, not, you know, it's hard to imagine that. The, pic, the manger scene of Jesus... Uh, there's Jesus in the middle. There's Mary and Joseph on either side. You see the shepherds with their sheep in the background. The cattle are lowing, whatever that means. Um, the, the wise men are there with their gifts. So you, you, you can picture that traditional manger scene, right? But now I want to change the picture for you a little bit. I want you to imagine that behind all these people, there's a big crowd of others standing around the manger scene like silhouettes on the wall. And all of them are there to witness the birth of the Jewish Messiah. Now as you zoom in on their faces to see who they might be, you suddenly realize that these are the faces of Jesus' relatives from the Old Testament. Their, their names are written in Hebrews 11. And there are more. There's, there's Noah and there's Moses. There's Abram. There's Sarah. There's Joshua. All the prophets are there. And they're there to witness the birth of Jesus Christ. But then, as you look very carefully, you see the face of one who stands out from all the others. You wonder whether she belongs because she looks very different. Her skin is a different color. She's wearing extreme makeup and perfume. Uh, She is dressed immodestly, to say the least. More like a streetwalker on Hollywood Boulevard than a holy Hebrew woman. Her name is Rahab. She was simply known as the prostitute. And there she stands in the crowd of those who are witnessing the birth of Jesus the Christ. Why? Because she was the maternal great-grandmother of Jesus. How did she get there? Rahab was a citizen of Jericho. A true pagan, an idol worshiper, a woman of ill repute. She was the ruin of many a poor boy. That was her job. And there is no masking the fact that Rahab did not deserve to have a relationship with the holy God of Israel. Nor did she deserve to be a citizen of God's holy nation Israel. And yet, her story is a story of how radical personal faith in radical personal grace brings a radically different outcome for an individual and for an entire nation. 
So her story goes like this. Before the Israelites attacked Jericho, Joshua, the new commander-in-chief, sent spies into the city to check things out. And these spies determined to hide from the king's men in the house of Rahab, the prostitute. No doubt thinking that this was the last place you would look for holy Hebrew men. And Rahab welcomed them. That's what Hebrews 11.31 says. She welcomed them to say the least. Actually, she did far more than that. When the king's men came looking for the spies, Rahab hid them on the roof of her house under piles of flax or straw. She misled the king's men, sending them on a wild goose chase all around the city of Jericho. And when the coast was clear, Rahab helped the spies escape, lowering them from a window in the wall by a rope. But before she let them go, Rahab secured a covenant of protection for herself and for her family because the Israelite army was about to invade. With life-altering faith, the prostitute chose sides in the battle. When the time came, the Israelite army and Joshua remembered their promise to Rahab. They enabled her to live, live out her life among the Israelite people to marry a Jewish man. And it was in this way that she joined the long line of grandmothers that led to the birth of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing story? Now, the pinnacle of Rahab's personal faith came in a conversation she had with the spies before she made her deal, right? And in this personal declaration recorded in Joshua 2, verse 11, here's what Rahab said. And this is a personal profession of faith. Rahab declared, no doubt with deep personal conviction and faith, the Lord, your God, is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The Lord your God is God. Now, why is that unusual? Well, because in Jericho, they believed there were many gods. And these various gods exercised their authority in different realms. Some of them were exercised power in the heavens. Others exercised power on earth. But none of the gods of Jericho exercised power everywhere. That was unheard of. So when Rahab was saying that the God of Israel is God of the heavens and the earth, she was essentially declaring that she believed the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus, is the God of the gods. That He is the God in heaven. He is the God on earth. He is a God everywhere. And in that personal declaration, she was essentially saying that I want to rest my hope for the future my very life and family, onto the God who is God. And it was by that faith declaration that Rahab and her family were spared from the devastation that came upon her city. 
And she was able to enjoy the victory of God's people. The prostitute chose sides in the battle. Now, we don't have to look too far or think too hard about how Rahab's story relates to faith in Jesus. The Christian life begins in a way when each of us personally and uniquely, in a sense, say what Rahab said, that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is God in the heavens who came to earth for us. And not only that, we say, like Rahab, welcome into my life. Come into my house. Clean it up. Straighten it out. Jesus, deliver me from the mess I've made of my life and give me the victory that only belongs and comes from you. That's how a person becomes a Christian. By simply welcoming Jesus You know, the incarnate God, the one who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven and gives his victory to those who believe. When you respond to Jesus the way Rahab responded to God, then you are delivered from the destruction of your own life and you are given a place in God's family forever. And it is as though you join the faces in the crowd that surround the birthplace of Jesus, your a member of the family. Now, people sometimes think, I've already blown it too much and too often for God to ever forgive me. That's a really common way of thinking. I was born in the wrong family, we say. I I started out in the wrong religion. Uh, I've been in the wrong business, doing it the wrong way. I've done the wrong things for too long. Well, we have to think about how Rahab would answer and respond to that kind of thinking. I believe Rahab would say, no. No. Don't dare think that way. Don't you think that way. Because Rahab would say, if God forgave and accepted me after all I've done and where I've lived, And the business I had, if God forgives, accepts, and welcomes me, then God, through Jesus, will accept and forgive anybody who welcomes Jesus into their life. Okay, so finally, we return to our definition of faith. Faith is a life-altering response to God, His Word, and His movement toward you. The people responded to God uh, by faith when he gave them an incredible plan for the defeat of Jericho. And so by faith, with life-altering faith, the people marched together toward victory. The prostitute responded in faith when, when, when God gave Rahab a way of escape from the destruction that would come upon her city. So with life-altering faith, the prostitute chose sides in the battle. And we've seen how faith is something that we share together in a community with others. And at the same time, faith is something that we express on a very personal and individual level. It is both the people and it is a person that respond in faith to God. It's not one, the other, both. And both kinds of faith 
come together inextricably, inseparably in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is calling us not only to have faith as individuals in Him, He is calling us to have faith collectively as a community in Him, to follow Him in whatever it looks like for us to have victory. Now many of you know that my full-time gig is um, to vacation inventor. No, my full-time gig is to uh, coach church planters like Santo, uh, who are guys who are starting new churches all around and beyond Philadelphia. And in my role as church planning coach, I get to hear and often see with my own eyes some of the amazing things that God is doing uh, all around the Delaware Valley. Um, For example, last year, I met a guy on the streets of South Philadelphia by the name of David Heyman. And David was well known in South Philadelphia as a drug addict, a drug dealer, and a person who was frequently in trouble with the law. Uh, He was the kind of person that you avoided. And he was the kind of person that parents uh, kept their kids from. That's David Heyman. And yet, my friend and church planner, Jonathan Olson, pastor of Grace and Peace Church in South Philadelphia, befriended David when no one else would. Uh, They would often have David in their home for meals. Uh, They would have David in their home for conversations. And these meals and conversations happened over the course of seven years. Imagine the faith and patience. And often those conversations had to do with Jesus and with David's need for salvation. And always he would resist. But then one day, last year, when David's life was falling apart, David surrendered his heart and life to Jesus Christ. He chose sides in the battle. And he began to march together with others toward victory. And so on Sunday morning, April 29th, 2012, David Drew Heyman, former drug addict, drug dealer, and menace to the community, was baptized in the name of the Father and of the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit and became an official member of a faith community called Grace and Peace Church, South Philadelphia. Five months later, David was found dead in his apartment. Apparently, his heart just failed him after a lifetime of drug and alcohol abuse. But on the following Saturday, his new church family packed the house for his memorial service to celebrate David's going home to glory in the presence of Jesus. And in this story, you see that the faith of a community of people were impacted by David's faith eternally. And David's personal faith was greatly enhanced and encouraged by the faith of his church community. So here's where we land. Your Heavenly Father is calling you to march together toward victory. By faith, you can accomplish more together as a church than any individual of you could accomplish 
walking alone. And by faith, your heavenly Father is calling you as individuals to choose sides. Where will you stand? Where will you be? Though we march together by faith, each and every one of us have to express and respond to God as He speaks to us and He moves toward us in a very personal way. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ, for sending Your Son who speaks to us and moves toward us in powerful and unmistakable ways. And I pray that you would give this church community and each person in it the power to respond by faith and belief. And that this would be a faith and a belief that uh, would be life-altering, that it would just change us from the inside out, that our lives would not be the same as a result of our encounter with your Son, Jesus Christ. That there be something about the way we live our lives as individuals and something about the way we live our lives together that unbelieving people would see and want. I pray that you would make within us an attractive faith, a faith that draws people to uh, your Son, our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Dr. Bruce Finn, coordinator of Church Planting. New City's Sunday Sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New City's Sunday Sermon.